Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, can be found on page 693 in the Church Bible. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. What do you want for uh, Christmas? I don't know about you, but I hate, I must admit, I hate being asked that question. Um, partly because... Um, probably got everything I really need, and um, I don't need much more. And anything I'd probably quite like is going to be too expensive anyway. It'd be a bit cheeky to, uh, to reply. <laughs> Partly also because I think if I don't answer, I may end up getting something I really don't want. And um, some relatives are more inclined to do that than others, as I'm sure you're all aware of. Partly also because if I do give them an idea of what I want... I may lose out on the surprise of getting something really nice that I hadn't even thought of. Now, when people ask us what we want for Christmas, they're usually talking about um, a present they can get us. But, of course, for many, what they would really like is something much bigger than money can buy. For some here, the gift that they really want is their health back. For Ken and Val's grandson, Rafi, what he, re- he really wants is a date for his operation. A healthy heart. For others here, the gift uh, may be a new job because they've been looking for quite a while now and haven't found anything. For some people in the world, countries like Syria, for them, all they really want after months of fear and danger and hurt is peace. They want their, their lives back. Well, the passage this morning is about a great gift, the greatest gift, one which we may not know that we need. It's also a surprising gift, because it is what the people need, but it doesn't come in the form that they might expect. They don't really appreciate their real need of it. 
What the people in Israel at that time thought they needed was, was peace from their big aggressive neighbour, Assyria. But the type of peace that God promised them was a much deeper one. And the form in which it came was very different. So how does Isaiah describe this gift in Isaiah chapter 9? Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Remember, (coughs) several years ago in, in Indonesia, Liz and I got up in the middle of the night to go and see the the sunrise over a, a spectacular volcano took uh, torches with us and uh, slowly made our way over the uneven ground uh, in the dark until we got to that vantage point where we waited for the sun to rise. And it was a spectacular view. And in a very short time, as the light dawned, it changed from total darkness to full daylight. As the light dawned, the darkness disappeared. The people here, it says, are walking in darkness because they're living in the shadow of death. And there will be some here this morning or others we know who have been bereaved in this past year for whom the darkness of death at Christmas is very real. There are others for whom over the course of this past year the prospect of death has has loomed very large. Death isn't something people find easy to talk about. But we know it will happen to to all of us one day. And it is the great leveller, isn't it? No matter how much we have in this world, no matter how successful we may be, we will all one day die. Man, for all his achievements, for all his attempts to, to roll back the years, has not been able to conquer death. And whether we like it or not, we are all living in the shadow of death. But now it says, a light has dawned. A light has dawned on those living in the shadow of death and the darkness of death has been extinguished. Because there is a hope. There is a hope for life after death. And that is the good news of Christmas, isn't it? That it takes away the darkness of death and it gives hope. And we'll come to shortly how we can experience that hope for ourselves. But the darkness here is not just the darkness of death. Because if we look back to chapter 8, look at chapter 8, verse 19. It says here, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to their testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. <coughs> Excuse me. The people of <coughs> the people of Israel, in their desperation for the knowledge and wisdom, in their desperation to know what might happen in the future, are consulting mediums, they're consulting spiritists, they're, they're dabbling with what we might call the, the occult, things which are, are hidden from sight, things which belong to the darkness. But the question comes, should not a people inquire of their God? And this is not just a criticism of those who engage in spiritism, it is a criticism of all those who do not inquire of God, who ignore him, to look to other things, other people for their, their knowledge and their satisfaction. 
Verse 20 says what they should be turning to. It says to the law and to the testimony, to God's testimony. If they do not speak according to this words, the word of God, they have no light of dawn. And so without the light of dawn, how they, they describe, or look at how it carries on in verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. <clears throat> Spiritually, those without God are, are stumbling in the dark. They're looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, but they're not finding it. And they're becoming more and more lost, ending up in utter darkness. What happens in a society that does not refer to God is that there's greater moral decline, there is greater injustice, greater spiritual emptiness, more broken relationships, and less joy. And instead of looking at themselves, the people will look for somebody else to blame for their troubles. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? They'll blame the Prime Minister, they'll blame governments, they'll blame people around them. They will curse God, even though they don't accept him as God. And without accepting that all the good that they enjoy comes from him. What is the first thing that changes in this situation when the light dawns? What is the first thing that happens? Look at verse 3. What happens is there is great rejoicing. This verse is written in the past tense, even though it has not yet happened, because it's a, it's a prophecy. The, uh, the prophet Isaiah is, is like he's cast himself forward in time, and he's looking back at the mighty acts of God that would have happened. And in order to help the people of Israel appreciate what this joy will be like, he gives them some illustrations from everyday life, things that they know that fill their hearts with great joy. He says, think about how you rejoice in the harvest. All the worry of whether there'll be enough or too much rain, whether there'll be disease, whether they will have enough food to eat. Think of the joy you experience when you bring in the harvest and you know that for the next few months, for the next year, your food supply is secure. Or think about at battle when you're worried about being defeated, losing all you have, and instead you win the battle and you divide the spoils of war. You take a share of the belongings of the defeated army. Think of that sense of rejoicing. But notice here to whom Isaiah is addressing this. He's, he's talking to God. He's saying, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Or verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. God is the one who's freed the people. He's freed the people from their oppression. He's given them the freedom. He's given them peace. And when it talks about yokes and rods, they will remember those memories of, of slavery in Egypt from their predecessors and how God brought them out of slavery. And now he will do it again. And not only will he free them and bring them peace, there will be an end to all war. Every warrior's boot, it says here, used in battle will be destroyed. Now, not many of us here have experienced the, the terror of being at war, 
troops are sent out to other countries. Wars are, are fought in distant lands. But only occasionally, like on July 7th, do we get a glimpse of what it must be like to live somewhere where you don't know whether your family or you will still be alive by the end of the day. And in that situation, to hear the news of ceasefire, to hear the silence of guns and explosions, must be an incredible relief. But this piece here is much deeper than simply the end of war. And it will come about through an amazing source. It will come about, in verse 6, through the birth of a baby. A baby sent by the same God who has been ignored by the people he has made because this God wants to shine light into the darkness of the world. This is a God of love who will bring eternal peace. Look at verse 6. It's a surprising thing in the middle of this, isn't it? To us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, the birth of a baby is a great thing, isn't it? A number of you here have experienced that recently. Iona Craig... Born recently, Chase Spratley, Molly Poot, who nearly became the first baby to be born in the Odeon Cinema in Aylesbury. (coughs) And this week, the big news story has been about a royal baby. We love stories about babies and uh, being third in line to the throne. It may be that for Will and Kate's baby, the same here, that um, the government will be on his or her shoulders. Baby may be a prince, may live during a time of peace, but he will not be the prince of peace because that is a title which conjures up much more than simply living through a time of peace that we enjoy today here in this country and take for granted. Who is this baby referred to in this passage? And what are these titles? What do they they mean? Well, what's clear is that this is not just any human baby, is it? This is a, a divine baby. There are four titles here given to him. The first is Wonderful Counselor in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor. To say he's a wonderful counselor is to say that he has supernatural wisdom. And as humans, let's face it, we, we all need wisdom. And most of the wisdom, the advice we get is, is not worth an awful lot. His advice will be better than any advice we may get from the world. He has the wisdom of God who is all-knowing and all-wise. He is mighty God, it says here. This child is God himself. The same child we looked at uh, last week, born to the Virgin, who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. As God, he's powerful. He has the ability to, to free his people, to preserve them. There's none more powerful than he. And to describe him as an everlasting father is not to confuse the God the Son with God the Father is to say that his rule will be that of a, a divine Father. He will provide firm, gentle care and provision. But let's come on to this title, Prince of Peace, which is the main focus for us this morning. He's a Prince of Peace, firstly because that characterizes his character. There's no hatred in him. There is only love to be found in him. And as Prince of Peace, he will bring peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said in Matthew, for they will be called sons of God. But what is this peace that he will bring? 
Well, peace is a bit like light, isn't it? In the same way that light is, is like the, the ridding of darkness, peace is the, the ridding, the absence of war. But as uh, Grant was saying earlier, war is far broader than simply countries fighting against each other. It, it's all conflict. To live in a world of peace is to live without conflict. And when we think of conflict, we might think of violence, murder, rape, abuse. Sometimes we're blind to the conflict that exists all around us. Not necessarily the violent conflict, but all the little things that disturb our relationships. The gossip, the grumbling, the jealousy, the pain we cause through our our selfishness or through our lack of sensitivity. The oversensitivity that makes us take offence when when none is meant. The scope for conflict is huge in a world of insecurity and fear. The peace that Jesus brings is an eternal peace because he deals with the underlying cause of conflict. He doesn't paper over the cracks. He doesn't negotiate fragile peace agreements. Of the increase of his government and peace, it says there'll be no end. Well, how does he bring this peace? How can a mere baby do that? Well, to see that, we need to look beyond the baby. We need to look to the man, Jesus. And unfortunately, not many people are prepared to do that. Last Thursday at Toy Box, we had the uh, Toy Box uh, Christmas party and we uh, got the box of costumes out. Always good fun. Uh, particularly for the parents to see their, their toddlers getting dressed up. And we retold the Christmas story, and we, we went round and retold what it says in the Bible. Kids loved it. I thought I was on a safe ground asking the little child dressed up as Mary um, as she cuddled one of the baby dolls, what she was going to call her baby. Um, but she answered Fred. Um, <laughs> There'll be thousands of nativity plays going on through this country, won't there, at Christmas time. But of all the parents who go along and take photos of their darling children, how many of them get beyond Jesus the baby? How many people get beyond a nice story at at Christmas for which their children can dress up? Because if we don't get beyond that, then, then Christmas is just about feeling good, isn't it? You know, a chance to receive presents that we don't really need chance to give presents to those who don't really need them. A chance to eat well, but then the following day, we're still hungry. A chance to have a rest from work, but we still need to go back. A chance to have fun to uh, get us through the miserable cold January. A chance to enjoy the carol singing, the nativity plays, because they are traditions that make us feel quite good inside. It's a temporary reprieve from the stress of life. But none of it deals with the real problem of darkness, which, as we said, is death. It's a life without reference to God, where God is not present. For many, Christianity is just about a baby, and and babies are cute, but they don't save anyone. Christmas is the start of the story, but many people don't read on to the end. They leave it there. Of all the people who come to church at Christmas, how many come back at Easter? 
Jesus was born a baby, but he grew up to be a man who dies a dreadful death. But he does so so that we need not die that death. So we need not fear death. So the punishment that is due to us for rejecting God, for walking in darkness, is dealt with. He does so so that that conflict between us and God is removed. That relationship is restored. We can live at peace with God. What's the first first thing that Jesus says to his disciples when he is raised from the dead? He comes back and meets them in that room. Twice he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. It's finished. It's over. I've done what was necessary for you to have peace. Enjoy it. It's tragic that the, uh, the nurse who took the hoax phone call at the hospital where the Duchess of Cambridge was a patient couldn't live with herself. The consequence of just making a simple mistake. It's tragic that no one told her about the peace that could have been hers in Jesus Christ. Many people will make mistakes over Christmas. Some more serious than others. But just when you think your life is ruined, no one can do anything about it, Jesus brings the possibility of peace, of restored relationships, of forgiveness. And it's a peace that will last forever. Think of the number of peace agreements that have been signed between the Israelis and the Palestinians. How many of them have been successful? How long has that peace lasted? Here it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This Prince of Peace will reign forever. The coming was prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. And with the birth of Jesus, that prophecy was fulfilled. And if that has been partially fulfilled already, that if he has come, then we can expect it to be fully, fully realised when he comes again. And that peace that he will bring is, is completeness, it is wholeness, it is fullness, it is shalom. It's possible for us to know that peace in our lives now. But one day when Jesus comes again, and the earth is made new, the dead are raised to life, We are given renewed bodies. We can live in a world where there is no injustice, no pain, no conflict, no hurt. Just people loving each other under the reign of the Prince of Peace. And whether we get the chance to experience that world of peace will depend on our response to Jesus. Whether we accept that gift that has been given to us. This is a gift that we do need. The Bible describes Jesus coming into the world as light coming into darkness. But it says men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. The reason it says people don't come into the light is because they are afraid their deeds will be exposed. But one day we will all have to step into the light and have our deeds, our thoughts exposed. If we do it now, then we can have all that stuff wiped out, wiped clean, forgiven. The question for you is, will you come into the light? Will you accept that gift of Jesus? If you have already accepted it, then has it changed your life? 
To what extent would you say your relationships are characterised by peace, by freedom from tension, from conflict? In our elders' retreat yesterday morning, we spent a bit of time considering the the results of the survey done earlier this year. Um, Second, a little while to get to it, but um, seeing what lessons can be learnt from from those responses. And we only really scratched the surface of it, but one of the questions I was looking at was to identify the attributes of the church. How would people identify those which most clearly reflect the church? And whilst this church scored quite highly on kindness, on faith, on gentleness, which is great, isn't it? We didn't score quite so highly on forgiveness, on unity and patience. And really, if we're going to be a church that is marked by peace, then it will also be marked by forgiveness, unity and patience. Because if we've been forgiven by a patient God, then surely we would be prepared to show others that same forgiveness. Make peace with your brothers and sisters. Don't hold grudges. It's good to be kind and gentle. It's more important in many ways to be forgiving and gracious. And then we can focus on our true unity in Christ and be full of rejoicing. I'm going to leave you with the words of Jesus that he said to his disciples before he he left them. Words which he clearly thought were important. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. If we're at peace with God, if we've come into the light, if we have the promise of eternal peace, then we have nothing to fear or worry about in this life. We can rejoice in the Lord. Let's have a moment of quiet to just uh, pray and, uh, and reflect on what's been said. Father God, the, the, the conflict in this world is only all too clear to us as we look around us as we experience it in our own lives. And what we truly need is peace. Lord, we thank you that you have shone your light into the darkness, that we can enter into the light, we can receive the gift of peace. We thank you that that gift comes through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We thank you that he has brought the peace that we need most, a restoration of our relationship with you. And for those of us who've received that already, we rejoice in it, we give you thanks for it, and we, we, we long to live in peace with each other. And we pray that by your grace, by your spirit, you would enable us to do that. And all for those who don't yet have that peace, the peace of having Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour, Lord, we pray that you would bring them into the light, that they may walk in the light, that they may rejoice in the light and know the joy of eternal peace. In Jesus' name, amen.